This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Deuter is known for fit, comfort, and ventilation. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in good-fitting backpacks, so you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive one free week. It helps support the show and it helps support you. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress. And tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Terakaya, made by women for women, is redefining the standard with sizing. The Torah basewear top is their swim-friendly sports bra that's designed for outdoor adventure. So you can hike, sweat, and climb to the summit in comfort. You can even wear it camping for days on end. It just about never gets gross. Trust me, I have tried. You can take 10% off with code for the love of climbing and show your support for the show. Go ahead and throw out your other sports bras because basewear is the only top you'll pack. Feel naked, go anywhere look great. This podcast gets support from Appalachian Gear Company, whose alpaca fleece hoodie won the 2019 Backpackers Editor's Choice Award. We've never actually won an award, but this one seems legit. The alpaca hoodie offers unmatched breathability, and you can wear it for days in comfort under a pack or harness, thanks to its durability and design. This lightweight, eco-friendly fabric is the sustainable performance piece that you didn't even know you were missing. You can take 10% off your order by using discount code for the love of climbing. Appalachian Gear Company stands by responsibly sourced alpaca fiber and this podcast. 
Do you ever make a personal rule for yourself, like, I will not eat carbs until I send this project? Yeah, I know. Who in their right minds, besides gluten intolerant people, you're excused, would do that? Yeah, I'm shaming the carb shamers. Personal sidebar, I am literally eating something called fry bread from a food truck right now. This classic Native American dish that's been deep fried to puffed up perfection is my dinner. I have no shame. Anyway, carb shamers, we know who you are and we don't care. We want to eat the french fries. Accidental tangent, the point is, do you ever make your own personal rules and then intentionally break them in order to serve the greater good? How do you make that kind of executive decision? Where do you draw the line between preserving beautiful order and flirting with absolute anarchy? I can't tell you how many times I've very stubbornly said, I will not interview a professional climber. One of the reasons behind this quote-unquote rule was that high-profile athletes already have a pretty big platform. So when they say pretty much anything, people are already listening. Anywhere between 10,000 and a couple hundred thousand people. That's a lot of people. And I don't know about you, but I think that one of the coolest things behind this podcast has been that these stories belong to really interesting people that you might not have heard of before. And they may or may not send the NAR. It's fine either way. That's not the point. The point is, these are your stories. And they're not about how many Instagram followers someone has. And they're not about sending hard shit. It's about choosing vulnerability, talking about our pain, our most awkward moments, and how we're all really just shining examples of this messy human existence. In this episode, for the first time ever, I broke my rule of never interviewing a pro climber, but I also interviewed his mom, so maybe I get by on a technicality. Who's making the rules up anyway? I think she should come back. You, uh, what you doing? No, it's the interview is for us together. <laughs> mom, 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 hello? Hello? Alrighty. I thought you said I'll be back. That's why I was like, oh, okay, we'll yeah, just wait for her. You know, I get sidetracked easy. Okay, that miscommunication might have been my fault. Recording podcasts during COVID has proven to be, um, tricky. A lot of you probably already know world champion Kai Leitner, but maybe you haven't heard of Connie Leitner, which would be ridiculous because, duh, everybody has a mom. And a mom's job is never finished, especially when you're also your kid's editor, PR manager, and secretary. What a lot of you might not know is how big of a role Connie has played in Kai's climbing career. You know, not that being a mom isn't already a full-time job on top of a full-time job. Yeah, Connie wears a lot of metaphorical hats. My name is Connie Leitner. I'm Kai's mom, and despite everyone always seeing me tagging along, helping him and belaying on the side of a mountain, my real job is actually being a professor and a department chair at a university in North Carolina. And it just so happens to be in management, marketing, and entrepreneurship. And it ties in nicely to a lot of the things that I have to do in managing his career and a lot of things that he's been doing. You guys are basically like a super team. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Do you also rock climb? 
I make fun of her every three or so years. Like, <laughs> and I get her to climb a five six. Every three years, I'll try a five six. I'll complain all over again. <laughs> it takes me like three days to recover before I can hold a pen because the pump in my forearms is so. I mean. Climbing is not really for people with junk in the trunk. Now, that's a discrimination. I'm telling you. I think that it discriminates against people with junk in the trunk. And anyone, that 5'6 should get me at least like 5'8 credit or something just because of the extra junk that I told. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's different. The 5'6 is not the same as it is for Kai or some of these kids. <laughs> I'm telling you. I, sh I should get extra credit. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, Kai. I'm with Connie on this one. You're not wrong. It's just every time people be like, so you have to be into climbing, right? I mean, Kai's 14 years in. Mom's like, nope. Because when we first started, they were like, you're going to love it. You're going to get into it if your kid gets into it. And my mother has held steady to that idea that I am not into it. I am a professional belayer. She's like, I will not allow these climbing holes to ship my expensive manicure. <laughs> exactly. A girl has got to have priorities. <laughs> And that's kind of how our morning started out. It's honestly been a while since I've interviewed two people at the same time. So I had to set a few ground rules. We're not allowed to interrupt your mom, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, and please. And interrupt you, I Please, that is not the concern. I will never remember this speaking. <laughs> You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirtbag Climbers. Here's the show. Goodness, I have to sum up my life. I mean, I've only been alive for 20 years, so hopefully it's not so hard. <laughs> um, but my name is Kai Leitner. I am 20 years old. For me, I've always been driven to kind of be my best self. I've always been really competitive, and I've always been really focused on things that I really care about. And so when it's come to climbing, like I put in 110% because I don't just want to be a climber. I want to be the best climber I can be, whatever that takes me, you know? And if I'm going to advocate for any of these things, I want to be able to have the biggest impact I can given my platform, you know? I just feel like I try to go into everything that I do and everything I support with 100%. Through my career, I have been able to win 12 national titles, 10 of them in youth and two of them as an adult. I've won five medals at the World Championships, including being world champion in 2014. What else? Um, <laughs> I've climbed 14D outside and I've graduated valedictorian of my class, which I think is probably my coolest accomplishment so far. You know, I was going to look up some of Kai's accomplishments to share with everybody, but seriously, there's a mile-long list of things that I could tell you. And it was easier to let Kai speak for himself. But one of the things that really stood out to me was his ability to speak so openly and eloquently about having an eating disorder, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast. But the guests and contributors have always been women. So to me, it was really refreshing to hear about an ED through the male perspective. We, society, dub so many issues as female only when they're not. Feminism, sexual assault, and violence 
Black Lives Matter. These are human issues and having an experience or even just caring about them isn't limited to gender specifics, aka guys, men, homies, amigos, we women want to hear from your perspective too. When I first started kind of talking about all these issues, I was basically just kind of sharing my own experience. You know, as an athlete, I think it's really important to reflect regularly on your own routine, whether in or out of the gym or in competition, so you can know how to be better. And so because of that, I've always kind of written down my thoughts and my feelings and what's been going on. And with COVID kind of happening, it's like I'm getting more of the, the life reflection more than the climate reflection. And, you know, Writing down some of these things, it was like, maybe I should kind of share this with people. Maybe they would be able to identify with some of my same struggles and people have. And so for me, in terms of advocating for social justice, I think that like I can only tell it from my own experience, you know, and that's where I feel most comfortable. I definitely do support a lot of the movements that are going on right now because I am an African-American. I feel like my best place is to be able to share my own experiences and hopefully people will identify with them because I feel like as an African-American in the sport, which there's so few at a high level that I have a pretty unique experience to share with people. I think that it's uncomfortable at any point to share your own personal experiences, especially when it highlights a difficult point in your life, you know? An eating disorder is something that I've kind of struggled with for a while since my beginning of my teenage years. Sharing that with the world definitely leaves you like very exposed. You're open to the support and open to the criticism at the same time. And also a lot of these topics are things that are very relegated to inner circle. So a lot of people who compete at this level know that it happens and we name people it's happened to, but it's something that people just don't speak about, especially as men. And so, I mean, it's uncomfortable, but I feel like all change is uncomfortable, you know, especially when it comes to social change. It's like you have to get through that uncomfortable phase in order for things to actually change for the better long term. I want you all to close your eyes and think back. Do you remember being 20 and this articulate? Yeah, me neither. What about being 20 and facing prejudice against you for the color of your skin? Do you remember understanding what discrimination meant as a child? And what about your first encounter with racism within climbing? For some of you listening, the answer is a unanimous yes. But for those of you who can't think of a time when you were othered while you were shopping or in school or at the crag, think about the reasons why. Even then, like my first overtly racial encounter was traveling to a climbing destination, you know, like that's kind of famous for being a little prejudiced towards black people. And so it's like I definitely uh, have experienced racism in a lot of those small areas. And that's where like the barrier comes in, you know, because a lot of major climbing areas are in rural conservative communities. And so when you're driving there and you see the flags and people are so comfortable using racial slurs and like the borderline jokes, like I feel like it does make it uncomfortable for people of color to want to venture outside. I and mean, even something as, I guess, trivial, quote unquote, as like the name of a climb in areas like Kentucky, Fayetteville, West Virginia. I mean, they have some racial undertones. And so it, it's understandable as a person of color to see all these things and just automatically assume that these environments are meant for us and aren't inviting for us. Terms do change in meaning over time, but something like the N-word, the N-word has always had the same meaning, the same connotation, and people know that it's been a word that's not acceptable to use in our vernacular since slavery. 
It's never been an endearing term except for in our own community because we've been able to flip it to something that's less demeaning because it's been used against us in such a demeaning way. Like, yeah, the N-word's never been acceptable. <laughs> so I, just, I don't understand how people could not know. It's in all forms of media, whether it's written, film, whether it's social, it's in the fabric of our society to the point where like everyone's heard it and everyone knows its connotation. today have kind of reclaimed that word and I think context really matters and you know if yeah. you really think about it though it is not meant as a compliment when people use that word it's because they're trying to hurt you and insult you and I would say the same for that word no time in history has that word ever meant to be a compliment or a word of affection yeah, and I think that another thing that people don't realize is even when you, you do use that word, whether you use it against someone or whether you're using it in a song lyric, they have the same impact, just differently, you know? And I feel like that's where the education piece also comes in, but also like using that word against someone means that you know what it means and it's malicious intent. But using it when you're singing a song basically implies a level of ignorance, you know? And it's like you're making everyone feel comfortable using it. And so it creates this uninviting environment because I can't interpret your meaning once it's come out of your mouth. It's like, that's your job. <laughs> and so it's best not to say it at all. When it's brought up in climbing roots, it makes us extremely uncomfortable because we know exactly who's naming it and we know exactly the communities that they're coming from. And so we're left to assume that it's you know, discriminatory, it's uninviting. It's like, why would I ever want to climb a climb that's the N-word, even if it is my style? I mean, even as a child, like trying to climb harder climbs, there's so many climbs that I've been out and scoped and thought they would be my style, but my mom's told me not to climb them because the names are inflammatory and how embarrassing would it be to have to post a climb with a name that like has you know a curse word in it or a slur in it, you know, even if it is my style. It's a huge microaggression that people don't even understand its impact. Okay, that was uncomfortable for a lot of you, right? Me too. And I think it's supposed to be. Since the killing of George Floyd, uncomfortable conversations about race have been taking place within families and close circles of friends. Ongoing political protests against police brutality and systemic racism, combined with the anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic, make it difficult to know exactly where to start. But everybody has a responsibility to do some heavy lifting. All mothers were summoned when George Floyd called out for his mother. From the unique perspective of a mom who raised a strong, smart, young black man, I asked Connie about the painful burden that comes from watching people who look like her child face discrimination. This is one of those topics that I don't know if I ever can speak about without being emotional. As a parent, um, you raise your kid, you want to protect them, you want them to be happy. You, Everything that we do in our life is to try to make sure that they're going to be happy growing up and just have a happy life. All sacrifices that we make are basically for that reason. And when it comes to that topic, to have to take innocence from a kid, and literally he was only six years old the first time I had that talk. 
the talk. Not the sex talk, not divorce, not about the tooth fairy or the family dog went to live on a farm in Wisconsin talk. Generations of black parents have had the race talk with their kids. And it comes in so many variations. It happens at every age. It's another uncomfortable but necessary conversation about how to behave in public, how to act around white people, and specifically, how to interact with the police. I was at home and received a call from a neighbor that he was hopping over their fences in order to get to his friend's house. And when I received that call, um, I called his friend because I knew where he was headed and I asked him to send him back home. And when he returned home, I basically, I mean, I wasn't upset with him, but he could tell that there was something definitely very different about my demeanor because I was very calm. Um, I reminded him how much I loved him. I reminded him how much I would do anything to protect him and I am looking into innocent six-year-old's eyes who believes that the world is the best place and I love everyone and everyone loves me. But I had to explain to him that even though you're not gonna understand anything I'm saying, you have to trust me. I had to start explaining stories from the news in which things occurred to kids that just were not right. And it was just because they were black. And I had to start giving him stories and he looked back at me with the widest, most innocent eyes because it was clear that he didn't understand, but he could tell how upset I was. And so he kind of responded to my level of, you know, sadness. And I just had to explain to him that you can't act the way that your friends act. It's not right. It's not fair, it's 100% wrong. However, I love you and I need you to come home every day. And the only way that I can protect you and get you to come home every day because no one will let you speak to realize you're a really sweet kid and you're bubbly and just so nice, they'll never give you a chance. Just because you are size, because of your color, people will judge you. And you feel as a parent like you're robbing your kid of their innocence. And that's unfortunately, that's not a one-time conversation. It's a continued thing. It evolves over time as you get older, you know? How society perceives you, you know, the different environments you enter, whether it's different levels of school or your first job. It's like those forms of racism evolve, which enters a new conversation of, you know, how you approach those situations and how you kind of have to change your demeanor, even growing up in an all-white sport, you know? It's like how I had to make sure how my actions were perceived because for a lot of people, I was, well, I am the outlet of what they think black people are like because I am the only black person that they see. I'm the only black person that they see at a high level in the sport. And so I'm realizing that like my actions, my intent kind of speak for my entire community, whether I want it to or not. And I have to keep that in mind in anything that I do in this industry. Girl, racial issues always <gasps> is an emotional one for us. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard from a lot of parents over the last few weeks 
and they're honest, good, sweet people that have contacted me to tell me that reading Kai's story and sharing it with their friends actually did open their eyes for the reason that you just said. It shouldn't matter if I committed a crime five years ago or if I did something that wasn't quite right five years ago. That has nothing to do with me jogging down the street today and being chased down or having a knee put to my neck on the ground. Nothing that you did five years ago has anything to do with what's occurring at that moment. However, it seems like every time you see something in the news, they always bring it back to the person's history, something that they did before. Whether it contributed to that incident or in most of the cases, it did not. And so with Kai being someone that a lot of people know, soft-spoken. He's a sweet, he's a kind kid. Even as an adult, he's a little special sometimes, but he's nice. He tried to treat other people the way that he wants to be treated. He graduated valedictorian from his class. His first publication that he wrote, an article was 16. 16 for Alpinist. In the Alpinist. And he was their youngest um, author that they ever had. So they know him as being articulate. They know him as being really smart. And so to realize that it's not just people that the media paints as people having troubled pasts that experience racism. So for them realizing, no, this happens to everyone, to anyone, it really was eye-opening for them. I mean, it's also important to mention that regardless of what you wear, it's no excuse to be disproportionately discriminated against. Exactly. And so, I mean, it's just the fact that I feel like I can give a new perspective because a lot of times the media will highlight those cases of people who have criminal backgrounds or have history with different situations, which, I mean, if you look into them, have their own history of systemic racism as to why people are in those situations in the first place. But for me to not fall in that category, to be the quote unquote perfect example of an articulate black person, I guess it allows people to see our perspective differently and actually hear us better. Honestly, this is like the first breath I feel like I've been able to take as a black person in my entire career. Because it's like, you have to put up this front for so long. And I recognize in my industry that if I want to be respected for my talent, I have to be twice as good as everybody else, you know? It's my responsibility to leave that door open for people who come after me, And you that's know? hard for a kid, because you get frustrated. You get mad, you get frustrated, like anybody else, but he could never show it. But he always it, had it's, to. It's role models in how I act, but it's also role models in even programs or things, because who's gonna care more than someone who falls in the same boat, you know? It's like, it would be a, a massive disservice to my accomplishments, to my platform, if I weren't supporting initiatives or starting my own organizations or something to give back. So, yeah, I, mean, I think it's also important to highlight that even going back to sports that I don't think there's a single sport where you have this much of a diversity gap and we don't experience racism, whether you're looking at Tiger Woods or Serena Williams, whether you have these black athletes who are not only the only black people in their sport, but they're winning. And I mean, I'm in the same boat. 
you know, I mean, I, I'm obviously maybe wouldn't compare myself to the legends in their sports, but um, but it's it's still it's like it's the same situation, you know, where like it's covert racism, you know, like in your face, but it's also like you know implicit racism, you know, like there's underlining and, and different microaggressions that people give you, whether it's trying to explain your success or whether it's trying to you know demean your abilities with your different attributes. It's a lot a lot of layers to it for sure. Being successful doesn't automatically equate to I haven't suffered, I haven't had these conversations. Yeah. We've actually heard that with people saying, well, because you have famous friends or because you have, you know, you're in this position, you wouldn't understand. And the reality is the target on his back was larger than most because he was in the spotlight, because he was doing well. So it didn't exempt him from those things. It actually put a bigger target. So we knew things that were being said and done, but we still kind of just smiled through it and just kept going because I wanted him to focus on keeping his energy on doing his best and just stay focused on trying to do the right thing and moving forward yeah and also i feel like it's an important thing to highlight that you can never use the exceptions to the rules in order to highlight the overlying problem because i feel like there's seven billion people on this planet there's always going to be an exception to the rule However, a lot of times where there's exceptions, there's also like where there's extremes and, you know, there's situations and success, there's also extremes in the, in the racism and the, you know, the hurdles that they have to jump in order to get there. It's like people will use like Oprah Winfrey as an example, but don't actually know her background and how she got to where she is, you know, or a lot of other people. So it's like, yes, I've been able to persevere and, I, and I'm here. That's because, I mean, there's a lot of different things that I, I've been able to fight through that I wouldn't have been able to get through if I didn't have a mother as strong as mine, you know? I mean, my mother grew up in, I mean, you can explain your own story. When talking about Kai in the media, you've heard people say a lot of times that it's different and he wouldn't understand. I mean, he grew up with money. He grew up having this or having that. The reality is when Kai first started climbing, my income was not very high. I was just getting out of college and starting off at the university and I was robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, borrowing from this in order to just pay for a lot of basic things for him. But even to go a step further, I grew up without money. I grew up in an area where my mom raised five of us by herself as a single mom because of unfortunate circumstances that she didn't cause that she was put in. But regardless, you look at him now, but you don't see all of the struggle that I had to go through to put myself through school to earn a PhD. My PhD is in operations research. That's applied mathematics and industrial engineering. And the struggle to get there, the struggles that he had to even go through just as we kind of figured out how to manage everything so that he could keep doing what he wanted to do. You don't really see that part because mm -hmm. we don't talk yeah. about it. I'll never remember like after my first youth world championships, I think I placed fourth in the world and I was coming back home on a plane. And she told me this to me with tears in her eyes, but she's like, I don't think that we're gonna be able to keep doing all these competitions because I just cannot afford to do this. I mean, at the time, I mean, it was my first year being able to go international and it was only even to Canada, but even that was financially straining on us as a family. And my mother was like, yeah, I, I can't keep up this kind of regimen. And right after we said that, I think a day later, I picked up- It was about up, a month. Yeah, my first salary contract, 
Yeah. We had a random phone call. I'm sorry, but I, I hope you don't mind that someone gave me this number, but I wanted to talk to you. And it's almost like um, it was put out there in the energy because I never told anyone that that conversation had actually happened. And we just started getting phone calls. It's an emotional topic. It's a hard one. <laughs> Especially for my, me and my mother, because again, like, I mean- I was oblivious to a lot of it. I was protecting her. Yeah, also, I mean, she's a single mom. I mean, a lot of these things that I didn't understand, my mother had to understand for me and to protect for me so that I could continue doing what I wanted to do. Because honestly, I feel like if I had been exposed to a lot of the things and understood a lot of the things, I may not have continued pursuing the sport. Not a lot of minorities are that fortunate, you know? To have my mother who's a teacher, so like her breaks are the same as mine, you know, to have the time and the energy and financial support to support me in an obscure sport that none of my other peers do. <laughs> we ask this question a lot, and the answers always look different. How do we bridge the empathy gap with long-term solutions? And what does anti-racism work look like? I think if I had to break it down in the steps, I feel like education is first because you have to understand how flawed the system is in order to be able to know what to do next and how racism even works, even in our own communities. And so I feel like a lot of knowledge has been floating around the internet from different outlets just explaining like how systemic racism works how intertwined it is in our prison system, in our you know criminal justice system, quote unquote justice, um, you know, even in the outdoor industry, which has such a massive disparity gap, you know, like minorities represent maybe 40 something percent of the population in the U.S., yet only represent 5 percent in the outdoor industry in general. And that is not a coincidence. And then the second step is just being voices for the community, you know? Advocacy is using platforms, but it's also, you know, signing petitions and emails and, and voting, whether it's, you know, local or presidential or even just council members in your own coalitions. It's just like making sure that people who are representing you in your communities and in your government have your best interests at heart. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm missing some things, but there's, there's, there's a lot of steps that you can take towards activism, but it's like a lot of it's just action, you know? You have to learn what's wrong and then you have to do something about it. Do you want to speak to brands using their voices, advocating for this, and also a lot of brands have been really silent on the matter? Do you want to speak to some of that? Being silent isn't okay, because if you're silent, that means that we don't know what side you actually stand on, what side you actually yeah. support. I think that those statements are extremely important. As a first step. As a first step, yes. And that's all it is, is a first exactly. step. Exactly, but having statements that aren't followed by actions are pointless, because we've heard them before. I mean, when it was Trayvon Martin, when it was Eric Gardner or Sandra Bland, like we've, we've seen the statements not be followed by actions for companies, and so we want to make sure that this time is different. A lot of us are pressuring companies to push initiatives internally and externally, whether it's funding initiatives or diversifying their hierarchies so that there's more diverse perspectives. It's just, it, it's a lot of work internally and externally that businesses have to do in order to, to help the industry. 
I think Michelle Obama said it best because I was watching her Becoming documentary where she was like, there's multiple forms of programs that affect the demographics of institutions, whether it's legacy, whether it's financial contributions. And so the fact that something like affirmative action is the only one that gets the attention and has the negative connotation to it is perplexing because it's like all institutions have the right to determine like how they want their business landscape to look, you know? And it's it never like just throwing in diversity just to have it. It's more so a conversation of diversifying the qualified people that are in your company. It's like making sure that we're seeing more faces of color that are qualified for the job. I think that there are some problems that's happening within companies because they don't have black people on staff because there are some things what that... What was he gonna say? <laughs> well, it's true. What was the company is the coolest monkey in the jungle? Oh, H&M, yeah. H&M. If there was just a black person in the room, they would have said, no, that's going to be a problem. So in a lot of the companies, they're realizing that nobody thought about because it doesn't relate to them. You know, it's something that they haven't experienced, they haven't heard, and they don't know that they don't know. And that's part of the reason why diversifying your staff, diversifying your employees is kind of important. With race, with culture, with gender, when you have those different viewpoints there and present and they're all respected, you have someone to say, hold on, that could be a problem. Yeah, and I feel like it's so easy to miss the mark on issues like this, that it's like, why try to play the guessing game when you can just diversify your boardroom so that you have people who know what we need as a community. We could literally look at statements across companies and tell which ones had diversity in the boardrooms and which didn't, just by looking at the statements. We could be like, okay, yes, they do. Oh, you know they don't. It's, that's why it's, it's just so important to have diverse perspectives, especially if we're trying to bridge that diversity gap. It starts at leadership and then it works down the ladder. What people didn't realize was how important diversity was to Connie, even from the point of choosing a school district for Kai. She didn't want him to attend an all-white or even an all-black school. And I actually looked that up and looked into those details before I chose where I was moving and where he was going to school when he was younger. It's because when you talk to different people from so many different walks of life, it contributes to the depth of your understanding. So when you speak, you're speaking from having this very wide range of just thoughts and experiences to kind of pull from. Whereas when you're in a monolithic environment or just you're in a space where everyone is the same, you're not gonna have that perspective. We have a unique opportunity now to figure out exactly how and what's the best way to move forward. I think that the focus has to be on programs on processes, on overall change as opposed to just having companies write a check to an organization to give them money for now. Because not only is it too easy, but when the money is gone, everything returns to normal. But putting programs in place that address the fact that there's a problem, whether it's um, access or whether it's feeling comfortable coming into the gym in itself. Look at the reasons why there's a gap and they have to be programs in place that are exactly. long lasting programs. I'm about to say, 
yep. that are going to basically start addressing those issues. Not a check, but long-lasting it's, programs it's, and initiatives. It's a consistency, you know, because it's like throwing money at a program and you don't know where it goes. It's like you have no idea how long that impact will have. And a lot of times it's just short-term just to, you know, have a PR statement basically. It's like we, we put something out there. But it's like if you really want people to feel invited, that's that's work. You know, it's like you have to break down those mental barriers in the industry to make people realize that like we are trying to invite you as a community to feel comfortable here because we want that diversity in the climbing gym, at the crag, at events in our communities. We want everyone to feel invited. We've actually been reaching out to a lot of different activists in the Black community. We've been reaching out to different organizations, and we've been doing very intense brainstorming sessions in order to figure out exactly what you just said. What should those initiatives companies are committing to look like? Because we want to make sure the actions that are taken are actions that will have long-lasting impact. And I also want to clarify something in the interview. I use the term Black and African-American like kind of interchangeably here, but they're not the same. We're more so talking about domestic issues and our own racial history in the U.S. and in my position as an African-American. And I wouldn't want to discredit, you know, the work of other Black athletes in other parts of the world, like, you know, the Malwin brothers or Molly Thompson Smith, you know. And so I feel like, yeah, just making sure that we're on track to sure that, like, I'm talking about our own communities right now. Those are amazing athletes also. Exactly. Is it rude to call someone black? Is it rude to ask if it's rude to call someone black? People often default to African-American out of political correctness, or maybe they're just trying to be polite. And even though these terms are used interchangeably, they aren't always accurate. So it's important to understand the nuance when talking about race both in America and on a global scale. For those who prefer being called Black over African American, it's sometimes because they can't trace their lineage to a specific country. Layers of racial identity can be extremely personal, but if you want to know for certain how somebody identifies, sometimes it's best to simply ask what their preference is. Several major news media organizations have recently changed their style in order to reflect a shared cultural identity and historical and social significance by capitalizing the B in Black. I mean, consider Asian or Native American or Latino. You wouldn't even think twice about proper capitalization. The word Asian would seem really weird with a lowercase a. When you look at it this way, using a lowercase letter to describe millions of people kind of seems disrespectful. It might seem like a minor issue, but that one tiny change is the difference between a color and a culture. It's an act of recognition of racial respect, and taking steps to educate ourselves to do better is one small thing that we can all do. I think, I think learning, I feel like educating yourself is probably the most important thing. One of them, that's the, that's the first Because one. you do not want to be a blind advocate or, you know, an ally that ends up doing more harm than good. Because that's almost more dangerous than just not doing anything at all. 
and understand that people don't want to be seen as being bad to their friends. So they may show you one thing and show me another. That happens. So just opening your mind to understand that realities for different people really can be different. And once you know to start speaking up, you have to make sure that you do better yourself with not doing some of the things that actually caused or contributed to the problem. But then when you're around and you see other people doing it, you have to speak up and you have to say something because that silence all of this time has been received as acceptance or agreeing with some of those radical or crazy positions. We're all going to have to speak up and say something if we really want this to stop or if we really want things to get better. So it's, it's learning and then it's actually implementing what you learn and actually holding your friends accountable or people around you accountable when you realize that they're not on the same page or they're not doing the right thing. And also like not understanding these difference in experiences like doesn't make you racist, you know, inherently. It's just like, it's kind of by design, you know? Society has been segregated in this way based on experiences on purpose so you wouldn't recognize what's happening. But like leaving your mind open to learning and educating yourself and not being like closed off the the possibilities of other people's realities helps you bridge that gap and be a better anti-racist. The redlining with the communities, inherently it was set up so that a lot of the areas are all black, all white. We weren't even allowed to buy property in certain areas. So a lot of things is not really your fault on the front end that you don't know because if you're segregated populations, if you're not around, if you don't see it, if you don't know yeah, other people, even, then yeah. you really wouldn't have the opportunity sometimes to learn some of it. Even down to funding of how different school districts are funded or who's supplying textbooks or educational resources for different communities, it's like those differ. How you learn and who you learn from shapes your perspective of the world. And so being able to understand that we learn differently and trying to figure out where the truth lies so that we can work together is important. Even something as unapparent as SAT scores can be riddled with implicit bias. Because on the surface, a lot of people will say that's not racist. It's a standardized exam. But I can explain the reason why where you live also, actually dictates a lot of the education you're getting, the resources that's actually being pulled into the school. Also keep in mind that my mother is an educator <laughs> with a PhD. When they switched the SAT exam over to being a new test, the year before Kai actually was, um, I guess he was a junior. I was a junior, yeah. He was a junior. And so you can't super score with two completely different tests. So he was forced to have to take the new exam in order to enter college. And the reason why I can use this example is because there were no prior exams. There were no textbooks that you can go get to learn, and it made me dive into understanding SAT much more. Previously, you could pay $100 an hour, $100 something dollars an hour to get someone who sits for every single SAT exam, learns the test, and will teach your kid how to take the test if you can afford it. But if you can't afford it, then you're going in blind doing your best trying to take that same test. And so when Kai was applying for school, he realized out of a 1600, the max score, you have to get at least a 1400 in order to be considered for the merit scholarships. And he was a little upset that 
they required him to have a 4.0 out of unweighted GPA just to be considered for those scholarships. But if you were need-based, you were allowed to have a 3.5 and you can have SAT scores as low as 1200. Kai told me it wasn't fair. I told him it was. And the reason why I told him it was is because when I realized the situation that he was in, I sat down for two months, pulled every resource I could possibly find, and I learned the SAT exam. Even though there were no formal textbooks, I learned it. Connie took some samples, and once she had it down, she sat Kai down for three hours a day and tutored him for a test that had never been administered before based on her research. Mentally, this was something that Connie could grasp, researching and then teaching. But if you had enough money, you could have paid somebody to do exactly what she did. And that was the reason Kai got the score that he needed in order to get a full scholarship. But for another kid that didn't have these resources and a super mom, they're not even on the same playing field. They don't have a PhD that's readily accessible to go and learn what you need. Because not all moms come with a PhD. Not all moms come with PhD. Exactly. And I don't, I don't mean to make the situation worse, but it's not even just my mother. My aunt upstairs has a PhD. My other aunt has a master's degree. Just two out of three yeah. of us have PhDs. The other one has a master's. So this, regardless, that's not a bench that most kids have that they can just reach to. And so the reality is, how can you compare his score, given the resources that he had, with the score of a kid who, right, they're teaching themselves, they're getting a book, and they're trying to study? You really can't. And so I actually understood why that difference exists. So I'm happy that they're considering taking that out of play altogether, taking it out of admissions consideration at some schools altogether because there is a layer of socioeconomic, even racial, because of, you know, most races, they, you know, people from that are, that are black, they have some of these problems and challenges in the school system. There is a component to that. And I only know that because we experienced it kind of in a different way. And so have colleges already taken them off the, or they're just considering it at this point? There are a few colleges that are actually putting it through their board to get that passed as we speak. And if I'm not mistaken, some they actually have because they're realizing even with the scandal that's occurred, if you're rich, people have been getting in and into the different schools and getting opportunities but it's not because they're brighter and so they're realizing it's added a whole new layer to the process that really wasn't intended and honestly i mean that goes back to what i said earlier where it's like there's multiple ways to get into these colleges where it's not just purely merit because you know you have your legacies you have your donations or donating a building and then you have your affirmative actions and these are all different ways that people determine the demographic of their school layout and so it's like discrediting one without acknowledging the others is kind of racism in itself and it's disingenuous to the process what gives the both of you hope and what inspires you to keep fighting, to keep speaking out, to keep showing up? I don't know if my mother feels the same way about this, but it's almost like a perfect storm for social change, you know? It's like we're at a period where everyone is in the house, social distancing, or supposed to be. Um, and you have 40 million people that are unemployed and in the house, glued to their phones, looking at the same news. And then you have this social revolution where people are seeing these cases of discrimination and are standing up against it, you know? And everyone's looking at the same information at the same time and not having the distractions of a regular world to keep them away. 
way. And so it's like, with all this happening, this time almost feels different in the sense that I've been seeing people speak out and understand at a level that I've never seen before. And even analyzing these cases and realizing that it's not right, you know, and there's no real excuse for a lot of these cases to end the way that they have. And so it gives me hope seeing so many people come out in solidarity and, and in support and even seeing my friends being active anti-racist that in the past maybe i will explain something to them and they don't understand it but to see how eager and willing they are to educate themselves and to be advocates and to ask me for help is heartening you know and i feel like that's probably what gives me the most hope and also seeing how much pressure we're putting on our systems to make sure that justice is served a lot of times we're so used to being satisfied with performative actions and we're able to kind of raise that veil and realize that like, no, we want something that will last in our system long after this movement is over. It's like, we don't just want Black Lives Matter painted on the streets and the voices of our favorite cartoon characters to be people of color. Like we want real legislation passed. We want elected officials who have our best interests at heart and just different policies at different levels. We want reconstructed police forces we want things that 10 years from now, even after it's not popular anymore to openly support black lives, you want to see that impact so that we can have the next generation be more comfortable in these environments or that we don't feel like we're being given tougher sentences or discriminated against because of the color of our skin. We want something long term. I'm very pleased to see the younger generation picking up a lot of these issues and actually being determined to move the needle forward, trying to use the momentum and everything that we have right now in order to push us to a place that's better. And I've happily been in this supportive role because to be honest, for a lot of us, I'm 48. Um, being older, I've been living on hope his entire life. How else do you on one hand, tell a kid, this is how the world is. It isn't fair, it isn't right. But on the other, you're pushing them to work harder, to keep fighting, to keep doing their best. I've always had to have hope in my heart that if he just keep working hard, keep doing the right thing, that eventually the world will get better and you'll be in a better place. So I've had to maintain hope all while telling him, all the things that aren't right and aren't fair, but you have to tell them that for survival's sake every day. So we've been living on hope. Maybe some of the, the pushes and strides that a lot of us have made to keep moving forward, to keep trying to bring things to a forefront are actually starting to happen. And we're just happy that the younger generation, that they're full of energy and they're ready to take that baton and kind of just push it to the next level. And even just to go back on hope, yes, we've had a black president. Yes, we have different people in our industry who are successful, but you can't analyze those cases without analyzing the experiences of the majority and be analyzing the extremes that those people had to go through in order to get to where they are. And even, you know, looking back at the family history of how they got to where they are. Because a lot of times you don't have these exceptions to the rules without exceptional hardships as well. And so, yeah, I think we're grateful. We're grateful that I'm starting to see a light. 
I'm starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And that's what we're trying to fight for. It's like we shouldn't have one or two people break through and have to go through exceptional hardships in order to break through. We're trying to make sure that the doors open equally for everyone, that we see that equitable diversity. Climbing for Change is a nonprofit organization founded by Kai Leitner with the intention to connect underserved communities with individuals and organizations to increase minority participation in rock climbing. From athletes to industry leaders, Climbing for Change aims to make our industry a more inclusive environment by offering opportunities for BIPOC individuals and DEI organizations. This nonprofit will use its platform to facilitate gym partnerships with industry businesses to offer affordable BIPOC membership programs, offer individual grants to assist with advanced certifications such as coaching, route setting, and AMGA guiding in order to become industry leaders, as well as annual grants for BIPOC. BIPOC individuals to attend national and international climbing competitions and more. Visit www.climbingforchange.org for more information. That's climbing the number four change.org. Even though I still have no idea what I'm doing, things are happening. And if you'd like to help out and support this podcast, please check out patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can sponsor us for as little as $1 per episode. It really helps keep this podcast going. And I'm so grateful for all of your help. Special shout out to Cameron McAlpine because he makes this thing sound good. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. LA Outdoor personal care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. And thanks to Terakaya. Go ahead and throw out your other sports bras because basewear is the only top you'll pack. Feel naked, go anywhere, look great. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time. 